welcome to the Directors Club Bonus with Brad and Al. We're doing a little bit of a special recording here because we took a look at a film that was a new edition from a director that was already talked about at the Directors Club, and we felt absolutely compelled to go and talk about this movie. Howdy, folks. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And we uh, were so very taken to be talking about Alfonso Curion's new movie, Roma. Joining us to go and take a look at this movie is a friend of ours from the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup group. He's actually a co-organizer of the group and, in fact, has been talking about films and discussion areas since 1971. It's a, it's a great pleasure to bring aboard Ken Silver. Welcome, Ken. Good to be here, Brad and Al. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> no problem. Yes, we're very happy to have you here. We've heard your input on so many films over the years from our other group, and, we're, and now we get to share it with our audience. I'm looking forward to it. Now, we were uh, lucky enough to take a look at Roma when it's presented in a theater. And in various ways, we were blown away by that very specific theatrical experience. Some ways that I personally was expecting, but some ways that really surprised me. That's worth noting because this is a Netflix joint. And as such, most people are going to have this very easy access to Roma, but... Of all films, this, more than most, really benefits from the big screen experience. So if you are listening to this shortly after its release, please look for where it might be playing in your area. And if it's later on than that, hopefully there will be revivals. But while its excellence will come through on the Netflix viewing, there are elements that will not. We should note that they have just struck 13 70 millimeter prints of this film, which was shot in 65 millimeter. And those are going to be shown in selective theaters around the country and at 70 millimeter film festivals. Having seen it both on the large screen and on at home, the story and the cinematography work at home, but what the, what the difference is that in a theater, the way it is shot, it becomes an immersive experience with you as part of the family. And so it's worth going out of your way to get to the theater. Exactly. Many great films have as their function to go and put people in a particular atmosphere, a particular feeling, a sense of place, and have us dive in and soak in that sense of place. And this is something that Roma, I have found, not only does magnificently and cannot recommend people to view it in theaters enough for that alone, but it's but that feeling... The sense of place is also very important to the story that Kirion is trying to say in this film. 
it does something that so many great films either do one or the other of. There are epic scale filmmakers who utilize the screen in such powerful ways, but sometimes the visuals overwhelm the story. Or on the other hand, you have very intimate stories like this one, and it has a more naturalistic or uh, realistic type of style. But here is epic filmmaking combined with an incredibly moving story with, with so much depth. And lest we forget an incredible sound design Again, arguing for seeing it in a theater with multiple speakers around that helps with the immersive experience in the film. Now, when, you, when we've seen really great transcendent films on a very wide movie screen, I think we can all be familiar to when from films such as Star Wars to Lawrence of Arabia to The Last Emperor to several of Curion's other works, such as like Children of Man or Gravity. I mean, especially that feeling in Gravity that you can dive right into this imagery and almost feel that you're amongst it. But what he has done, Curion has done so successfully through his other films visually, here is a triumph on sound design. I can honestly th say that I don't believe I have ever heard the uh, uh, sound used in such a rich and full way in this film. This it's a film that does not use conventional symphonic themes or musical uh, notes to call in on the action. Instead, it creates a whole world where uh, street noises, the sounds of families, the rushes of wind, the pounding of waves. And even like the clattering of a knife salesman as he rides down the street are all collected and, and put together to create a, literally an audio world. So the, the experience of watching this in the theater is kind of like it's an adjustment because you're sitting there and there's a sound coming from behind you, but it might be subtle enough that it's not quite calling attention to itself until it gets a little bit louder. And then you hear some dogs barking to your right, or then some chattering to your left. And depending on where the director wants our focus to be, this will either be low and subtle or fairly intense in the mix. It's kind of like audio 3D, <laughs> as, yes. as what Caron did with gravity with his 3D process, in my opinion, the best use ever of 3D, he does with audio here because you are forced to reassociate what you're hearing with where you are. And this is one of the great advantages of being able to see this movie in a theater if you get the chance. Because the th a theater environment, provided you have a lack of people checking their messages in front of you, <laughs> of course, has the opportunity in the, the darkness and to just have the focus on the screen and the sound and gives you as an audience member a chance to settle in. 
Because this is a movie whose pleasures and dramas just get revealed in a very deliberate way, especially in the beginning course of the film. There are some films that just take a while to get you in, and you have to, you know that something great is coming. This is a film that from the opening shot under the titles with some tiles in, a, in an entryway, water being poured over that, the reflection of an airplane, the tilt up to uh, a long shot of, of seeing the maid who is going to be our heroine in this story, taking the mop back down the hallway, walking over to the right, putting it away, and walking into the bathroom. And as the camera sits there, there's just a sense that you want to take that image uh, and hang it in the Art Institute of Chicago. It's so beautiful. We should mention that the, these images are in black and white. And as we mentioned before in the 65-millimeter uh, film stock, there is a clarity to them and a vividness to the black and white photography that is pretty extraordinary. Yes, a, a very interesting choice to have it in black and white. Part of the reason could be that Curion has said this is his most personal movie. It's based upon events that he went through in his life as part of a family. And the main character, Cleo, that Ken referred to, is, uh, was based off his real-life maid slash nanny when he was growing up. So part is meant to evoke the sense of a time, of a time gone by. Right. The, the sense of nostalgia in this film is so particular because unless you grew up in Mexico City in the 70s, it's not necessarily a nostalgia everybody is going to associate with their own childhoods, but the set design and the recreation of Caron's old home. Now, he, he grew up with a wealthy family, and so the home is pretty elaborate with just a lot of rich detail in it. So the director's nostalgia is very palpable to us because we're seeing all these things in the frame that aren't really necessary to the story. They're rich details that add to the atmosphere. Yes, if you want, if you're interested in seeing how like a movie screen can put in detail after detail after detail to help create a world, this is an absolute triumph. And Kirion's camera is is very very deliberate in terms of these very long tracking shots as people pass by multiple shops and the items in each shop. Uh, the different toys in a child's room, the different posters that are uh, gracing the marquee of a movie theater, they're all de depicted, and especially all the people in the crowd scenes are depicted in just such loving detail. Everybody's doing something different 
and something notable in their in their lives as the camera gazes upon it. It might help at this point if to put everything we've said in context, we talked briefly about the plot of the film, which centers on the the Cleo character. We're given this introduction to her world, all the de- these out el- these different elements and details of what it's of what life is like trying to help take care of this family, the duties therein, and what you do in your what you do in your off hours, just going shopping, going to movie theaters, and uh, and she has a, a, a colleague friend, and they're they have some great banter upon the various tasks they're asked to do by this family, and the family's a pretty rambunctious bunch in their own right, and and at the same time, it's also the story of the comings and goings of the family, the relationships in the family, the relationships between the mother and the father in the family. So it does not have what I would call a conventional plot arc. It's a day-to-day living with the family as various things happen to the family that that makes it relatable even if one is not from mexico city we've talked in a previous podcast on bellatar about contemplative cinema and uh for me the, uh, roma is a bit of a hybrid because much of what you're saying, Ken, in, in describing the initial elements of the plot are contemplative. We're observing natural life. We're watching people go through their day-to-day process rather than following the mechanisms of a plot. As the movie progresses, plots, themes, and stories start to assert themselves. So it kind of gets to a point where the contemplative label isn't quite as accurate, but it is there at least at the beginning. Well, that's one of the exceptional qualities of the film that I find is as it looks through Cleo's life and the life of the family she takes care of, it gives us the opportunity to look upon her life and contemplate it, but it's not the subject of many a contemplative film who tries to just have a person have a normal life for people doing basic activities and having us wonder upon or think or consider how their lives are behaving in the middle of these activities. Roma does have that. But what's incredibly cool is it also show Roma's also showing that the course of her life has these moments of the mundane, has these moments where great drama and danger and emotion course through during the course of what we get to witness that Cleo goes through. And it, there's moments where it even does both, where like you get a, a more remarkable emotional turning points from people doing the most basic of things. There is an, a straight-up 
revelatory yoga pose, for example, <laughs> in the movie. And so sometimes a movie can be magical, and I think one of the things that Roma does great is it's magical in multiple ways upon showing all these moments and giving the detail and appreciation for each of them. And it does it in the way that the best Hollywood films do as well, in that there's very much an emotionalism to the film. We get to know these characters, we get to relate to them. So when they go through challenges, when they face tragedies, we are, are right there invested with them. Yeah, and the movie's very insightful further on how uh, how people's pain or uh, or the crises that affects one per, uh, one person shows up in their behavior towards another. <laughs> there is a one particular detail on this driveway that the family uses is there is a uh, the family dog often leaves some say deposits so <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the cool things is just the sheer number of these things and when they're cleaned up or who steps on them causes some frustrations but the first but the things that cause it, that cause them to get angry are are from a crisis that that that, it, that we're not aware of at the time and i think curion also makes a makes that statement in sort of political terms especially as like the uh, youngsters mostly boys engage in a lot of what uh, rough housing and and uh, arguments and and fights and the different fights get also the the reasons they fight are coming from different problems that the kids are uh, experiencing that uh, that the others are not even aware of, and it expands it to show that maybe a part of Mexican society at the time was also behaving this way. There is definitely a theme of class difference as we look at uh, the wealthy family. And then the maid in her dealings with the family and in her own life. That's even elaborated in the language that's spoken as the family uh, speaks traditional Spanish. And when the maids are out on their own and, and being social, they're from a different ethnic group. So they're uh, speaking a language called Mixtico. And the classes, the class differences is something that Roma depicts incredibly nicely through the details. Very rarely is there a, an explicit case of people lecturing upon uh, the problems between the classes, but it's an in, but it's an incidental detail. Whereas, for uh, for example, someone makes an offhand joke about using a, a weapon against the workers at his ranch, or the way how the uh, Cleo and her and her co-worker laugh upon like all the electricity getting used that the family is watching out for their uh, their overuse of electricity, and from that we get this uh, this sense of the political and social strife of the time. The way we've discussed it so far, we've discussed a, a lot of themes that appear throughout the film, and for me, there's more of a linearity to it which might help the listener decide that it's not going to be a difficult film to get through. The film begins with a series of events in this luxurious house that is filmed 
in a very open, luxurious way with relationships between the children, the mother, the mother and the father, and all of them with Cleo. And that sort of sets the baseline for where things are. And then the father goes off on a business trip, leaving this location. There's a, a second location when Cleo takes the, the children to the downtown of the city, which is, as, as you were mentioning before about the detail in the shops, one really gets a sense of what go, going downtown as a child is like. Then we learn that the father is actually not where he is claimed to be on a business trip, but is actually going to leave the mother and is actually in town. And the rest of the family is invited for a Christmas out at a relative's hacienda in the open forest where we see lots of nature, we see a humongous living room filled with the whole family and Christmas elements. We see a fire start. We see the morning after that, one of the most beautiful shots in the film, a large panoramic shot of the entire valley and mountains in the front, in the rear, with Cleo and her friend in the foreground. Remarkable cinematography. Then we come back to the house, and it is the same house is shot as if Bresson had shot it, uh-huh. with, with bars emphasizing all the bars in the house and the separations in the house that we had not noticed before, and everything seems smaller and more cramped. And then you were talking about class differences before. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, Cleo goes to visit the village of her boyfriend, and we see someone from the government promising these people who are living in abject poverty, walking on boards above open sewers, promising them the great new day of water. We come back again to the house and we see the, the village in a different light as they go to a store and we find out that all is not well and there's a, a scene involving some violence. I think you made a great point there, Ken, in that how when, especially in the case on the house, every time we return to the house, we have a slightly different attitude because we are now more aware of what events have happened in the house and what events in Cleo's life and how must, Cleo, how must she be feeling 
to be work to be working there, considering the events that have happened to her. As we're traveling through through those environments, I, I'm thinking of kind of two very impressive visual techniques that that Caron uses to convey things without outright saying them. So you talked about the uh, hacienda and and the hunting trip. Now, one of the atmospheric things about that sequence is how many stuffed animals there are and uh, the taxidermy and their right. kills all uh, all placed at awkward <laughs> areas throughout the living space. Mm-hmm. And we get the sense that the family is also looking at this and going, well, what what kind of, of world is this? And that places us in, as an audience in that same point of view. The other thing that I wanted to mention, because you were talking about uh, the father and, and and his characterization, and his characterization is really spelled out to us in a very visual way, which is that he has to drive his car into the garage, but there is barely enough space in between the walls of the garage for the car. So you see him, because he's done this a hundred times, very meticulously organizing his drive into the garage so he is be sure not to scratch the car when he literally has only inches of leeway uh to work with <laughs> like a uh, a jean-pierre melville caper movie or a james bond villain could scarcely have a more cool polished introduction to the way the father show uh, makes his first appearance in Roma. Right, but it tells us now about the father that this is a very meticulous guy who is not necessarily going to be willing to compromise to the environment around him. Exactly. He's something that there has a measure of remove from the regular dealings on the family and he ha- has this sort of superior or exalted position that he's that we, that the movie just shows us from the way he calmly holds his cigarette as a, a tune is playing as he makes this absolutely way too suspenseful as necessary move to park his car. And we do see other things about his character. Two things that struck me is that despite all his planning, he fails and that the car does strike the wall. And the second thing is that the front tire ends up right in the dog droppings (laughs) in extreme close-up, which tells us something about the director's perception of the father. Exactly. The movie is very, very rich in these little details, and the details sometimes have a tremendously solid uh, symbolic meaning, such as that auto having to fit in that driveway to run over that bit of dog crap, like that all just really informs that family's situation, at least as far as how the father is concerned. And then there are characters that are somewhat less subtly introduced. Uh, For instance, Cleo's boyfriend who, instead of a more traditional lovemaking scene, we see him full-on naked, 
practicing his martial arts moves in front of her and in front of us because he is incredibly impressed with himself. Yeah, using the most out-of-a-bathroom uh, curtain rod that you could have possibly imagined. Yes. Outside you, of a Chan, Jackie Chan movie, that is. <laughs> but it's a sword for these purposes. Right. He is... Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, the, the movie is very cool in how it moves in from giving us things from unexpected directions like this. That's a, one of the many whoa moments that it provides in terms of changing our attitudes about what we're, what we're looking at. And since you mentioned the boyfriend, as one would ex might expect, after the encounter in a, in a hotel room between Cleo and her boyfriend, that sets in motion the plot of Cleo's pregnancy. Yep. And her fear of being pregnant and her deep concern that the family is going to fire her because of her pregnancy. Fortunately, that begins to create a bond between Cleo and the mother, the biological mother of the children, who says, no, of course we're not going to fire you. We're going to take you to the hospital and get, get you taken care of. And the family, contrary to what she expected, it actually brings her closer to the family as a member of the family. And everyone is very protective of her growing, the growing body inside her. The movie is so thorough in how it shows how each member of the family interacts with Cleo from being annoyed that Cleo is directing them to stop running so fast to the littlest a uh, member of the family who keeps telling these very fanciful stories and about things that he was in a past life. <laughs> it's one of our biggest hints as to which of the children is our uh, writer-director surrogate because this is the child who is bonding most closely to Cleo and for whom she has the most meaning for him. Mm, and there's a very touching moment in the beginning where they're on the rooftop of this house and they're leaning back and watching watching the sky and have a very cool conversation where they sort of share the kind of fantasy that the kid is presenting together. Right. He says, I'm dead. And instead of being kind of an obnoxious, typical mother... In this case, what she does is lies down next to him and he starts talking to her and she doesn't answer. And he says, well, why aren't you answering? And she says, I'm dead. And they then, <laughs> then have this bond and discussion about death that it just remarkable, remarkable in its simplicity, its beauty and its emotional depth. Yes, and this like this is a good time to point out the really remarkable performance by the actress who plays Cleo. She has to express so much with how she deals with the family members and the events that happen to her and she partakes in and so much of it is expressed through 
her face, her posture, her demeanor, things that, that words were, are, in many cases, would be too, way too inadequate to express. And you get to see her changing emotions and attitudes on the course of the movie in this, in this remarkable way. It's a really spectacular performance from someone who I believe was a school teacher before Curion hired her to have the role. Yes, this is Yalitza Aparicio, and apologies if that was mispronounced, but the impressiveness of this performance is, is incredible. The fact that it's her first screen appearance, she is such a natural actor and somebody whose expressions convey so much. This film was many, many years in development. And I, I have to think that one of the things that moved it forward and got it to the point where Curion was finally satisfied that his vision could be achieved is, is in this casting of the, of the lead character. And there are many scenes for which he gave her very little direction. Right, and that brings up the director's strategy in dealing with the actors is that he basically gave them just the script they were going to be utilizing that day. So every morning, the actors would come on to set and they wouldn't know what was about to happen to their characters until they arrived and got the script. So it, it does become this improvisational feel to what is such a meticulously planned visual landscape. You have the sense of the momentousness of this or that point in a person's life. Roma is superb at both honoring how big moments can be in a single person's life and at the same time giving us the perspective on how that fits in the world they're in. And the movie is gives this deep focus to people and events happening in the background in even the most dramatic scenes to show that the moments in our life are vastly important, but then also a part of the, of the tapestry. And that tapestry is made even richer by a strategy that Caron uses again after it was so successfully used in his earlier film, Itumama Tambien, which uh, told the story of an adolescent love triangle. But instead of focusing just on that, it also focused on this kind of road trip of the impoverishment of the Mexican countryside. Now, here we're in this city and we're talking about the family and the maid, but in the corners of the screen, and again, this is where the sound design isn't just for effect, but something that's very meaningful, we're constantly being made aware. What is happening outside? What is going on beyond the limits of this family dynamic? And as it turns out, this was a very chaotic time in the history of Mexico City, and there was uh, much civil unrest and violence. And we see this encroaching 
upon our story, but because of the visual strategy, it literally encroaches as to when they're doing some shopping, just having what seems to be a nice innocuous day, and the camera pans out the window, and there's a riot. Yes, that the, the sense of personal tension and political tension just get mixed in such an interesting way when in, in this scene. And also ties in with the tensions between the genders as part of the, the, th- the thing the movie is illuminating is the um, Mexican version of, it, of the James Brown tune, It's a Man's World on how the men in the film engage in different pursuits and, in fact, a, a very strange kind of pageantry is involved as, for example, people talking about the economic gains of a part of the, of a part of the land that uses a guy getting shot out a cannonball to indicate <laughs> that success is around the corner to a, a vast series of people engaging in martial arts moves that turn off to have a more sinister political end later. So the way the film mixes in the the, the personal drives for these situations and these gender differences in like the scope of the history and the time frame is pretty remarkable to behold. It's clear in that martial arts sequence, and I, I don't think this is a spoiler, that they have a special guest who is teaching and he asks them to do what he calls a very difficult move that only several monks and he have been able to do (laughs) and he does it and everybody laughs and then he asks them to do it and all of these people are of course, not able to do what initially seems simple. And then as the camera pulls back and back and back, we see Cleo being able to do it. So he ties in his admiration and love of Cleo into this environment from which she comes. Right, and his sense of perspective is so spectacular on that because what is he saying on that scene, aside from the uh, uh, appreciation on Cleo, is the idea that we should re- we should have a reevaluate the kind of big grand moves as this as this character who shows up on the scene who has been introduced earlier doing amazing feats of strength like pulling a car with his teeth <laughs> <laughs> but it's treated for great comic effect too but it's presenting an idea that the grandest things the things that people can most look up to can come from just the smallest of actions that don't even look all that impressive at first. And the imagery on this is is great. Like it has a cube because it's out on a vast field that has almost has like a Akira Kurosawa brand wind machine co- uh, coming coming in. And the, the sound design is also echoing this from the rust, from the whispers of the wind to the occasional roar of a plane that's glinting, uh, that has the sun glint on it as it passes by our would-be heroic figure. (laughs) 
And it kind of fits into another theme, which is conformity versus individuality, mm. because we're seeing these large group of people doing these movements in unison. And, and it's a powerful visual. But one of the things that I think the film is trying to get across is how there's so much pressure, whether it be in a uh, society or in a family, to follow a particular path. And as the Caron surrogate, as a little boy, is observing Cleo and how she handles this pressure and how there are certain expectations that we think are inherent in her. But one of the things that makes her such a rich character is she is this constantly evolving individual. And so then when she makes decisions that are very much her own, that are not expected and, and do not conform with expectations, we see her setting this example that was so powerful to Corona as a young boy. Mm, yeah, that's really, really well put. She, she has so many things coming in her life. And I think part of the effectiveness of dealing with both the stark black and white images, the whole meticulous attention to detail, it's, I believe, meant to get us a view of it's such a big, 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 big world for Cleo. A bigger world that that she had, or anybody, or us in the audience, would have trouble getting it all in. This feeling that there's just so much vastness in the detail, in the minutia, in the complexity, in all the personal family things, in all the uh, social and political things in the country. Cleo has to navigate herself in an environment that is as full of directions to go as Sandra Bullock's character in Gravity has emptiness and she has nowhere to go. And speaking of Gravity, if you're a fan of Alfonso Curion, who I am, I'm quite a super fan of him, in fact, you will find a lot of interesting things in here because not only has he said explicitly that it's his most personal, but you actually get these points of the movie that hearken to some of his other work. There's actually a very cool reference to gravity in the movie, for example, when you see uh, the family watching a uh, outer space movie called Maroon. So featuring uh, what I hope will be uh, Gene Hackman's greatest final appearance in a film, leaving Welcome to Mooseport in the dust. <laughs> I think another social element that we see in this film because of his perspective is the importance of women in society and in his life. We start with, of course, with Cleo, with whom he is close. And of course, he has a, a biological mother. And we see those two women gradually become closer and closer and closer and then there's a character we have not mentioned yet, who is the grandmother, who apparently has some money because the family continues to survive after the doctor leaves. And 
we see her every morning as the general who gets everybody off to school, out to work, wherever they're going, on time. She is clearly in charge. So he has a very female-centric view of the world because of his, his upbringing, which is truly fascinating. It's definitely a, uh, definitely a situation where the male figures are found to be kind of lacking when not only in Cleo's boyfriend, who notably is depicted in two scenes wearing a Love Is t-shirt, <laughs> <laughs> but also in, uh, for example, the, the various pro- political pronouncements that are being made or speeches that are said, and, one, and a guy who will help Cleo, but he needs to get a moment because he needs to get his pants on. <laughs> yeah, none of this is an accident. We can see a lot of parallels between Cleo's boyfriend and uh, the father of the family in their behavior and their self-involvement. Ken, I think you really hit the nail on the head in that uh, you see a lot of uh, toxic masculinity uh, gone wild in this film. (laughs) Which also, by the way, ties into The Hunting Lodge. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Right. The Hunting Lodge scene is my favorite set of sequences in the film. Without giving too much away, it harkens to a sentiment from my second favorite film of all time, uh, Jean Renoir's Rules of the Game, because that film really encompasses the human idea of everybody has their reasons, and through these scenes you get this panoply of all this human behaviors, how, how cousins and brothers and uncles and visitors are all at the do behaving in their their own unique ways at this hacienda and it shows out the class differences in the two main places where the where people congregate for the festivities and concludes on an, a moment of really elemental magic i can i think that's the best way i could put it as you get a moment of danger coming in that leads to a particular uh, character from folklore going out and ha- having a song. And so it's both it's bo- really, really poetic and yet very illuminating on people in their situation at the exact same time. Mm. And while putting in all these human details, the film does not shy away from showing things in like the most elemental way possible. Literally the old school elements. Earth, air, fire, and especially water make their presence known at a gut level, especially due on the sound design through over the course of this movie. I already mentioned that about how well the wind is used in that scene where the per, uh, where the Hero, would-be heroic figure makes his, makes his particular pose. But then fire also plays a great part, and there is a very notable moment in, in Cleo's life where suddenly an earthquake happens. For me, the earthquake is both element and it's also an example of a lot of foreshadowing that's used in this film. 
the earthquake foreshadows something that will happen. The shooting at the uh, hacienda with the, with the big party foreshadows the use of guns later. There's a a visit to the beach that foreshadows something that will happen at a second visit to the beach. In many ways, he's he's planting the seeds of you're seeing things one way and then you see them a different way later on in the film. Right. It uses the scope on thing on time at a similar level of mastery that it does on the sense of space visually and space in the audio level as well. So we've talked a lot about many parts of the film, but one of the questions I have for you is about the ending of the film, if we're ready to go there. I can describe the scene so we're not being too mystical about it. Um, Cleo has some laundry in her hands and there's some discussion and then uh, she walks up a staircase to the top of the building and we see the mystical jet plane that has appeared two or three times before appear again and then the film ends. And my question is, what are the multiple possible meanings of that ending? Things that have occurred to me are, well, if, if I were to put on my non-metaphorical hat, I would just say, well, she's doing laundry. But I'm, I'm suspecting that this film is a little more than that. Um... It could be that he is, he is suggesting that she is an angel and is truly ascending to heaven. It could be that for reasons about things that have occurred in the film, she is unhappy and decides to jump. I'm, I'm open to other possible... What what does the ending mean? Well, the ending takes in several of the aspects that we were talking about and lets us go consider what has happened, what has happened to Cleo and and her and her place in the world. For example, the shot is when as she ascends is from a very low angle and you see the rooftop and a vast expanse of sky. This, I think, is very key to the very beginning of the movie, which is the, the, the dog crap is being cleaned up, but we're seeing these tiles and the water and the plane that shows up in a mere reflection of the suds of the, of the cleaning water is now we're seeing it outright just a moment after Cleo leaves the scene. Yeah, for me, the plane is really the key element in all of this because it represents the idea of a larger world of expanding one's horizons. And because this is such an autobiographical film, 
my read on that is Caron is saying that I'm going to leave this environment and he's now this great successful director and that is what what will happen to him and he he's saying that one of the first steps to this opening of his mind which opened all the opportunities is his observations of Cleo and the way she lives her life so for me the the ending is actually a very positive one he he's basically saying with the airplane now you understand where i came from and i'm now going to explore the world and the idea and the ideas in the world and so can the rest of us that's a really cool way of putting that brad I was really curious myself as to what that airplane meant in its appearance. But I think you have it pegged on the idea of opportunity of, of a getting to a wider world. Something that Cleo, that truly Cleo sees just as a reflection in the beginning. And then notably when she does the pose that no one else can, that's the third moment that the plane, that the plane makes an appearance. Mm-hmm. So, to harken back to a scene earlier in the film when they're showing Gene Hackman's little cameo appearance in the in Marooned, I, when I saw that, I was amazed by it because it then got me a realization that that movie, or something like it, and there's various astronaut imagery because the space race was in full bloom at the time, that that feeling was helped, what informed, what drove Curion to make gravity, that sense of space. Mm-hmm. That's the impression I get, is it was drew from this moment in his life. And I think this is where um, the Muroma can be almost like a Rosetta Stone for people who like Curion and want to know, think more and consider more about his work, is they look at this world, and Curion, I think, wants to show this as, a, as sort of the biggest rosebud sort of snow globe of all time, <laughs> that this is, this is where I feel I was at. And in a way that gravity might be the way of, his way of honoring those feelings he had about space and distance that he felt so long before watching these films, Cleo's ascent at the end of Roma is away his gift for her by this movie. If you take Brad's idea that the plane means a, a chance to like visit new worlds and view things in a higher perspective, I think by having Cleo, to have Cleo get to a higher level and then have the plane, it's his way of showing us that Cleo should be held up there for a higher for and the things that Cleo did and the things that the character she represents did in Curion's own life should be held at this higher level. And so I hope that this discussion here lets you guys listening in get a sense of 
all the different great qualities that we've found when we saw about Roman and explains why after we saw, we're lucky enough to see this in a theater, we wanted to go and uh, discuss it and podcast it over to you. Ken, thank you very much for joining us and helping us explore the world of Roma. It was a great visit. You can catch a director's club in numerous locations on the net. We are part of the Now Playing Network. Can be found on Facebook and iTunes and Spotify under Directors Club Podcast, under Twitter as DC Podcast, and our episodes, bonus and otherwise, can be found at our website, directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and hope to catch you at another episode of the Directors Club. Arrivederci Roma Adios Goodbye Au revoir Puede que algún día Vuelva a verte Volver a enamorarme De tu fuente Cumplir el juramento Y vivir siempre. <laughs>